Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have quite a unique guest, you know, because we're always talking about uh, raising money and big exits and stuff like that. But today we're making an exception. We're making an exception because this founder has an amazing, remarkable story, a story where he has had the opportunity of bootstrapping their uh, company now, and they've been able to get it to an amazing you know, level. You know, we're talking about 20 million ARR, you know, which is really fantastic for the resources that they had, you know, initially going at it. So we're going to be talking about uh, what were some of the experiences in academia, you know, the experiences too with raising money at the beginning, which didn't pan out the way that they had hoped for, as well as getting the initial traction. And then also where the world of remote work is heading. He also recently published a very interesting book that we're going to be talking about as well. So Without further ado, let's welcome Liam McIver Martin. Welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Thanks for having me. Very excited about getting into a lot of those details. So originally born in Ottawa and raised there as well. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, it was okay. You know, I had a relative suburban lifestyle. So two parents that were very happy and loving. I actually ended up doing a lot of competitive sports and ended up getting into pair skating. So there's two things that you do in Canada. You either play hockey or you figure skate. And around 13, I was really interested in all these girls in very short skirts. So I switched over to that and did very well. So around the age of 14 or 15, I actually ended up leaving home. That's why I said it was Ottawa-ish where I grew up. Because I ended up traveling around with the Olympic preparation program that are in various different cities throughout Canada. And that was a difficult but discipline building environment for me that I think is so critical for the world of entrepreneurship that I exist in today. Now, very much a competitiveness, no, and and an exposure that that gave you, no, because I obviously as a founder now, you know, you got started very early. I mean, we're talking about eighteen years of age when you started your first gig. So, how do you think that thing, that 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 worldview that it gave you, how do you think it has helped you later on that competitiveness as a founder? Well, I was really kind of almost like an entrepreneur in the closet. So I ended up coming out completely around my early 20s, my very first business was a sporting goods company. And I actually ended up selling some pants and skate guards specifically to protect figure skaters like myself from being cut. Because I had actually two or three friends of mine that had cut their arteries. And one of them had almost bled out and died on the ice. So it's incredibly dangerous. So I actually ended up developing these products and selling them. And this was before really, I mean, the internet existed, but like I built my own website. Um, I did everything on my own and that was a great business. I ended up actually doing uh, some pretty good numbers on that one. The very first year ended up getting a loan. Actually, that was my first time I ever raised money, by the way, um, which is hilarious. So I ended up raising a very small amount of money from the bank. When I was 18, actually, it wasn't raising money, it was a loan. And I raised 50,000, I believe, or 100,000. And then the very next year, I went back to all of those same suppliers and they were not interested in doing a reorder at the same amount that I was uh, 
purchasing that they were purchasing for them initially. So it was a really problematic issue where I thought I knew my cogs. And then the next year I go back and the cogs get completely obliterated. I almost got out of that business uh, with my shirt on. I ended up selling it for a very small amount of money. And I was relatively successful in terms of my learnings, but not very successful in terms of the monetary advantages that I had doing it. And it was it was a great experience, but I would probably say more of a learning experience than anything else. But I'm sure that that made your mom happy because as a result of that, you went into university. So uh, what happened yes. there, you know, with the academia side of things, because it did not unfold the way that you had hoped for? No. So my mother really wanted a PhD in the family and I had been accepted to graduate school at McGill University in Montreal. And so I didn't have the money to actually go. So I ended up selling the business in order to go and also to just focus me on academia. And I went through that program for about two years. And for those of you that don't know, most graduate students end up actually teaching first and second year classes. And so I got my very first class. I remember it so clearly. It was 300 students at the beginning of the semester. By the end of the semester, I ended up with less than 150 students and the worst academic reviews in the history of the department. And the department had been running for about 185 years. So very bad. I ended up walking into my supervisor's office and I said, I don't think I'm very good at this. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, so what do you think I should do next? And he said, well, you got to get pretty good at this teaching thing if you want to enter academia. So either get better at that or figure something else to do. Four weeks later, I threw a master's thesis under his door and I was out into the real world, which gave birth to my next business, which was an online tutoring company. And that company was relatively successful. We actually ended up having hundreds of tutors throughout North America and Europe that would be connected with a student virtually. So this was in the days that we didn't have Zoom or we didn't have uh, Zencast or any of these other types of apps, but it was Skype and it worked half the time. And we ended up working with these students <clears throat> primarily for pre-med prerequisites. So for anyone today still interested in actually running a tutoring business, pre-med prerequisites are the place to be because parents will pay exorbitant amounts of money to make sure that those kids have a 4.0 GPA to be able to get into the right schools. And the problem that I had was I couldn't actually account for the amount of time that was being spent with these students. So I'd bill a student for 10 hours. The student would come to me and say, I worked with my tutor for five. I'd go to the tutor and say, did you work with Jimmy for 10 hours or five hours? He'd say, 10, of course, I billed you for that. I'd end up having to refund the student for the five hours and pay the tutor for the full 10 hours. This was destroying the business. I ended up speaking at a conference called South by Southwest, which is basically like um, spring break for nerds. And I met my now business partner, Rob Rossin, who had this really crappy alpha of Time Doctor, which is the tool that we have worked on over the last 11 years. That could very clearly equate for the amount of time that someone worked remotely for you. And, you know, basically at this point now, we've got a couple other brands. We've got staff.com, which is our enterprise version of Time Doctor. And then we also have Running Remote, which is the largest conference on building and scaling remote teams. So then tell us about, you know, the, how, how, how you guys, you know, like really got, got into work here with the, with the company, because I mean, obviously you had built uh, the last one, you know, to 500 people, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and uh, it's unbelievable, you know, to think, hey, you know, I want to switch 
ship, you know, at this point. At what point do you were you really clear that that was the next chapter for you? And and how did you go about selling the company as well? So that actually ended up I ended up getting pushed out. I ended up talking to this company and they were really interested in our online model and they were running an offline model and they were way way bigger than uh, like we're talking, you know, they were the dominant force in this particular industry. And so I ended up talking to them and they wanted to talk to me and they were very interested in how to do online tutoring. And so I, they flew me down to their head offices. I was really excited to be able to talk to them. And I sang like a songbird for two days, telling them all the details of the business. And instead of them buying me, they built a competitor that ended up actually taking more and more of my market share away from me. And then I essentially went back to them and I said, well, listen, I've got no choice here. Uh, I would love it if you guys would buy the company. They gave me a shit offer. I accepted it. Lesson that I gained from that is recognize when someone is trying to buy you and shut up as much as you possibly can. Because the less information that you give them, you need to be able to get your M&A guy in. You need to be able to have those, those people in place that handle that side of the business for you. Because from an entrepreneurial perspective, I just didn't understand. I was too naive at that point. And it ended up, you know, I, I, probably it was one of the greatest faux pas of my professional career, which was uh, not getting the exit that I deserved. I hear you. I hear you. You always need that uh, good uh, and bad cup. You no, know, when obviously you talking about how beautiful the vision and everything is going to be, but then always, you know, getting, like you said, you know, the M&A advisor that is going to help you with achieving the best possible terms and negotiation. No? So, um, exactly. so good stuff. And that's, by the way, what we do at Pantera Advisors. Now, with that being said, you know, with Time Doctor, you know, you got, you got going. So how were the early days like for Time Doctor? So they were tough. Me and my co-founder, we bootstrapped the business, but we had a few hundred thousand that we invested inside of the business. And it was a very tough time. <laughs> I remember about two years in, I, I, I reduced my personal salary down to a personal salary. I wasn't getting paid by the company at all. But I said to myself, I can live on about $40,000 per year, pretty comfortably. So I kind of reset my lifestyle. I was in my mid to late 20s at that point. And I said, okay, I'm going to take a couple of years off. I'm going to learn SaaS. I'm going to learn software because this is the direction that I want to go. And this is where I want to take my professional career. And three years in, I had approximately $20,000 left in the business. We had a multi-million dollar business at that point, which was great. But every dollar we were investing back inside of the business, because it's so important, particularly in those early stages, every single dollar that you can put back inside of the business and you can turn it into $2, $3, particularly with a SaaS model, it's amazing for your long-term trajectory. But I remember talking to my business partner, Rob, and I said, so I've got like three months of cash left in the bank. I need to be able to start paying myself something. So I actually ended up taking a salary first. It was $26,000. We could just, you know, that was the minimum amount that I needed to be able to survive. And then my business partner, Rob, then took a $26,000 salary. And uh, we just started raising our salaries by like 10% every year, which is pretty amazing <laughs> to be able to see where we are today. I was telling him literally a couple weeks ago, 
thinking about where we were 10 years ago versus where we are today, we never would have thought we were at the levels that um, we're currently achieving now. But it just goes to show you that SaaS has this model of compounding that no other business model in the world can take, can equal in terms of getting that snowball rolling. And then once it's rolling on its own, it's just moving, right? A 67% of our customer base comes from referrals as a business. So it's a really now very easy business to run. But in the first few years, it was incredibly difficult. And that speaks volumes of the value that you guys are bringing to market. No, I guess for the people that are, you know, are listening to really get it, Liam, what ended up being the business model of Time Doctor and all the different branches associated? How are you guys making money? So SaaS, software as a service, which essentially means we have, we work with a company as opposed to you paying $200 to be able to purchase Time Doctor for life. You instead would come to us and say it's $10 per user per month, which is our current pricing. And then you just work on a recurring model. And the advantage is that you get the most up-to-date version of the software all the time. We're always constantly updating it. But then the advantage to us is you pay a premium for that. And so it's a really great model because at any point you can quit if you're not seeing enough value. And uh, for us, we get that premium for you sticking with us. And what about the actual business? What are you guys doing? Yeah, so... It's a time tracking tool for remote workers. And what we do is we measure not just the amount of time that you spent throughout your workday, but we measure the websites and applications that you interact with throughout your workday. And this allows you to, number one, be able to figure out some really interesting insights towards work activity. And it also allows you to be able to do a lot of interesting data with regards to artificial intelligence. We can predict when... Um, you are going to quit your job. As an example, we can predict when someone is ready to become a manager. We can predict with a pretty low false positive rate whether or not you're going to be properly onboarded inside of your company. So essentially think about it as like Google Analytics for your workday. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email, 
at Alejandro at PanteraAdvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. You guys are doing pretty well. Uh, you've been able to build this thing, you know, just from like an investment that you and your partner had made initially of literally like a few hundred thousand dollars that you had. But you tried raising money and uh, and that ended up not uh, working. Well, I think in hindsight, you know, for for those, you know, uh, investors, when they see that you guys are already at 20 million plus in ARR, I'm, I'm sure that they're probably like, oh, my God, I can't believe we missed this one. But why didn't that, you know, why did, did that not unfold the way that you guys had hoped for? What what was missing, you know, on those capital raising efforts that didn't pan out as you had hoped for? Very simply, it was a disagreement on vision. So our vision and our mission as a company is we're trying to empower the world's transition towards remote work. That is what feeds into everything that we do as a company, the conferences that we run, the book that we publish, everything that we're doing. And we went around to a few VCs. And they were quite interested because we had had pretty successful growth up until that point. And they, every single one of them asked for us to be able to bring not just the founders, but the entire team to that particular location in every single term sheet that we got. And we argued with them saying, well, our mission is to empower the world's transition towards remote work. Don't you think we should be eating our own dog food? And they said, oh, we love your vision. We love what you're doing. We love your mission. But we're VCs. Trust us. Move to Palo Alto. Move to New York. Move to Toronto. And we just decided not to do it because it wasn't the right fit for us as a company. And looking back on that, that was actually one of the best decisions I ever made because 2020 rolled around. And just in the year of 2020, we grew at 202%. And it was like monumental growth for us for an eight figure SaaS business to be growing at 202% is off the charts and realizing that if that had been 40, 50, 60% owned by VCs, me and my business partner wouldn't have the freedom to do what we do today, which is we run about 20% EBITDA. Uh, we're able to put that money directly into our pockets as the founders of the business. And we're able to run a, a functional business as opposed to a business that's focused purely on acquisition, which I think a lot of the companies that raise money, I mean, that's the end goal, right? Is to either get acquired or go public. And the vast majority that can make it through that process generally get acquired as opposed to go public. So for me, I really like running a real business and it allows for us to have a much bigger and deeper moat than most other companies that I see. You were talking about this earlier, you know, about vision and how you disagreed on vision with, with these folks that uh, when you guys were discussing the financing side of things. But to just double, double click on that, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, Liam, and you wake up in a world where the vision, you know, of the company is fully realized. What does that world look like? Oh, well, that was about, uh, that was March of 2020. <laughs> So February of 2020, 4% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. By March, it was 45% of the U.S. workforce that was working remotely. The month after that, it was 67% of the U.S. Wow. workforce working remotely. That is the biggest transition in work since the Industrial Revolution. But the Industrial Revolution took about 80 years, and we did that in March, completely changing everything that we understand about how we socialize with regards to work, how we interact with work. If you look at pre-COVID levels, San Francisco... 2% of all corporate real estate was available pre-pandemic, right? In February of 2020. Today, 
23% of corporate real estate is open in San Francisco. And that number is going up, not down. People are not going back to the office, even though you would think, and there is a lot of propaganda out there to be able to say that everyone's going back to the office. The actual numbers are more people are working remotely today than they were six months ago. So we're seeing this clear shift back to long-term remote work. And I'm a very patient guy. I've been working remotely for 20 years. I'm excited about working remotely for the next 20 years. So I see us probably being at about 50% of the U.S. workforce working remotely by 2040. And at that point, we've essentially achieved full salinity levels for, for remote work, where everyone on planet Earth will be able to have the opportunity to work remotely if they choose to. And, and, and you're alluding to this here, but where do you think the whole world of working remotely, where do you think that's going? You could double click on that. Sure. So the last few years, we've seen a significant pushback to the office. And it's undoubtable that the majority of those companies want to be able to have people come back because honestly, the cost of corporate real estate is very expensive and they're in a real tough spot right now. When you look at the real cost of corporate real estate, it needs to have a 30, 40% correction before we're actually at a point where we can continue, we can grow sustainably and move into this next stage of work. So I think that 2024 is still going to be a really hard pushback to the office. I think by 2025, people will recognize that everyone that possibly wants to be back in the office is already back. And then you've got the other side of this industry which is the people that want to be able to work in a hybrid environment, want to work remotely, even people that are digital nomads, location-independent workers that move from location to location and want to be able to work. That segment of the market is still growing quarter over quarter. If I was building a business today, I would definitely be building for that segment of the worker population because those are the people that are going to completely, that's going to be the growth side of the basically the software world of work is going to squarely be in that side of the camp. And if you're investing right now in corporate real estate, I would uh, not <laughs> I would find something else to invest in. Yeah, no kidding. Now, there's probably a lot of people that are listening that are either running a remote uh, type of a company or that are thinking about starting a company and perhaps going fully remote. What are some of the key ingredients that need to be in place to make a remote company successful? Sure. So I go over this in our book, Running Remote, but essentially you need three core tenants. Process documentation, you need asynchronous communication, and then you also need the ability for people to be able to have a technology stack that supports those two. So process documentation is you need to actually write everything down and write everything down is not the way I want to really say it. You want a digital version of writing those things down. There's actually a lot of really great companies right now that are using large language models to be able to pull out processes from all of your different databases of information, from your email, from your Slack, so that you can basically just ask a question like, what's my PTO policy? And then it will just respond to you saying, your PTO policy is XYZ, you have 14 days left. Do you want to book off next week on your Bamboo HR? that type of a thing. So building those processes so that managers are not responsible for actually communicating that information to employees. And that's critical. The second side of this is asynchronous management. When I looked at companies 
that worked remotely before the pandemic, the one single thing that they all had in common is something that I call asynchronous management, which is the ability to be able to work with people without synchronously interacting with them. Me and you were communicating synchronously, but the people that are listening to this podcast are consuming that information asynchronously when it's most opportunistic for them to be able to consume it. That's a really important part, is if you built your business on a mindset of no one actually needs to have synchronous communication in order for the business to succeed, then synchronous communication is just the cherry on top that allows you to be able to run faster. But fundamentally, you need those systems in place, process documentation being a critical one. And then the piece underneath it is all of the software and systems in place that you need to be able to operate this. So we use tools like Asana or Jira or Zoom. Uh, These are tools that are absolutely critical to the way that we operate our business. And just by having those systems in place, I can say like, hey, book this podcast off next week because it's really important to me and make sure that you've written up a two paragraph intro to intro this next guest. And I put that on a sauna, I assign it to someone and it just gets completed without actually interacting with that person synchronously. So you were, you were talking about it earlier. Uh, you co-authored the book Running Remote, which came out in August of 2022. So for the people that are listening, what are some of the things that uh, they're going to be, you know, able to find on that book in addition to what you were just uh, uh, mentioning now? Sure. So the pieces that I found very frustrating with all of the books that had come out right after the pandemic was, number one, there were a whole bunch of books that came out really quickly after the pandemic, like three to six months after, after March of 2020, so many books on remote work. And the majority of them were crap. They were really bad. And the reason why they were bad is, number one, they were just rushed out the door. I actually ended up talking with someone who I had never met before in the remote workspace and published a very successful book that had a big launch. And I asked this person, why? I've never heard of you. And and I know everybody in the remote workspace. And this person said, oh, I was working on something completely different. But my publisher told me, hey, can you write a book on this subject? Because if you can, we'll give you a $250,000 bonus to be able to get this out in six months because we need stuff to be on the shelf. So there's a lot of crap that was coming out there. And what I realized was the only thing that everyone had in common with remote companies that were remote before the pandemic was this phenomenon called what I'm calling asynchronous management. Companies like GitLab run completely asynchronously. They do not actually talk to each other on a daily basis. And so for me, I really don't think it's about whether or not you use Zoom or Google Meet or whether you use Asana or Monday.com. It's more the actual philosophy, the managerial framework that you need to go and change in order to be successful when you work remotely. And so for me, that was the key differentiator and exactly what I wrote the book about. So if you want to know like, you know, whether or not you should use Salesforce or HubSpot, I'm not the book for you, but if you want the philosophical framework in order to be able to change your management style, Running Remote is the book specifically on that. Amazing. And if anyone listening wants to hear about the story of uh, GitLab and how they did the whole remote uh, structure, you should listen to the episode I did as well with uh, Sid Branding. So I guess the uh, now for the people that are also listening, you know, I'd like to ask you a question because we've been talking about you know vision and the future. 
But I want to talk about the past and doing so with a lens of reflection. If I was to put you into a time machine, Liam, and I bring you back in time, you know, maybe to that moment where you were 18 years old and thinking about a world where you would start a business, let's say you're able to sit down that younger self and you're able to give that younger self one piece of advice for launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Don't launch a company, buy as much Bitcoin as you possibly can. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, uh, let's, let, me, let me think about it seriously. Uh, I probably wouldn't have very many regrets, to be honest with you. I think that I would probably tell my younger self, there's going to be a lot of pain that you're going to experience over the next few years. However, it's all going to work out and you're actually going to end up being much more successful than you possibly could have thought you could have been standing there right now at 18 years old. But you're going to have to go through a lot of shit to be able to get there. And I think that that's really the story of all entrepreneurship at the end of the day. What type of pain do you want to experience? You want to experience the pain of no money, bootstrapping a company, going slow for many, many years before you can actually scale up and build something big? Or do you want to go through the pain of raising money, learning how to do that, uh, having a board breathe down your neck, having the the stressors of everyone telling you, you must grow at this rate or you're not going to get your next round of financing. Do you want that type of pain? Choose your pain. And either direction, you're probably going to have a very stressful time, but it's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to learn a lot of stuff and you're going to be able to, you know, in 10, 15 years, be able to have a fantastic lifestyle where you live where you want to live, you travel where you want to travel, you do what you want to do with whoever you want to do it with for as long as you want. And that for me is just the, that's the promise that entrepreneurship provides to everyone. And it's so important to be able to keep that in mind, particularly if you're that 18 year old person right now, listening to this podcast, it's going to be painful, but you're going to blink and you're going to be 40 and you're going to be really excited about where you're at. That's amazing. So, Liam, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Best place would be actually going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash running remote. All of our talks are up there for free. And if you want to be able to check out all the content there, go check it out. Also comment and I will respond. That's the only form of social media that I actually directly respond in. Other than that, LinkedIn, Twitter, Threads. I'm actually having a lot of fun with threads right now. So go check me out there. Amazing. Well, hey, Liam, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.